let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions and we're back in your ears once again. The cider is in the glass, but we're not alone, are we, Martin? No, we're not, Steve. Welcome to the show, Gabe Cook, aka the Ciderologist. Oh, it's it's uh, it's great to be here. Always great to be uh, the interloper, the sort of the unknown uh, person on the lurking at the back of the stage there, um, with the with the hosts unknowing exactly what's going to be happening. I think we're going to have some fun today. Well, as Steve said, the uh, the first cider is in the glass. Um, perhaps you'd like to uh, share with us, Gabe, exactly what Steve and I are going to tackle. Absolutely. And I'm loving the way you were having to really over-enunciate the word <laughs> cider to make sure cider, that you say cider. the word cider. Yeah. So yeah, for, first cider, first of three ciders. This is called Wild Disco and it comes from Nightingale Cider. Sam Nightingale is based down in Tensadon uh, in Kent. And this is a beautiful, classic, uh, what we call an Eastern Counties style of cider made with dessert fruit. It's light, it's floral, it's zingy, it's fresh. I know we're going to talk more about it later on, so I'll just let you uh, have a sip and enjoy. Wassail is what we say in the cider world. There's a cidery cheers, so wassail to you. Wassail. Wassail. Go on then, Steve. What do you think? You're you're pulling a little bit in the (laughs) face. Um, It's really strange. It's it's not what I was expecting. So so, so, so first of all... um, that there is a, a checkered history with, with me and cider, which we will come on to later <laughs> on, no doubt. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not full on apples, which which I guess is what I was expecting straight away. Uh, on on the nose, um, it's almost white wine like. Yes. And, yeah. And, and there's some hints <laughs> of, I, I suppose, if the closest thing I can associate to it, it's a, it's a little bit bretty. On, on the nose as well there's that there's some hints of if, if you were drinking like a, a a sour beer or a lambic picking up some of those aromas on the flavor it's incredibly clean it's, mm. it's it's refreshing it's really crisp and it's really really easy on the finish as well yeah it's quite quite a medium dry type finish it's not cuttingly dry and long lastingly dry but it's still enough dryness there to make you want to come back into it i think you said it was did you say it was tentaton it was isn't that that is wine country in that part of the world as well isn't it you're absolutely right. They're, they're based literally just down the road from Chapeldown, one of you know one of the UK's more famed uh, classic sparkling wine producers. But you know, pre-grapes, absolute heart of of apple country, and obviously plenty of hops grown in that and down in that part of the world as well. Your your, your description. You should be proud of yourself, chaps. You're obviously you're you're you're, you're junior ciderologist in the making here because <laughs> you're because you're you know your palate is 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 spot on. All your descriptors are there. This is what we would call a wild fermented cider so the it's a spontaneous it is a spontaneous fermentation um which can be guided and taken down in different paths and in fact all three ciders we're trying today are actually spontaneously fermented which wasn't necessarily intentional but as as you will taste as we go down they can be driven down different routes this is definitely more of the the cleaner sort of side of things and accompanying maybe the lightest little bit of sort of brett character um, it is about sort of florality and aromatics. And if you're interested in, you talked about white wine, especially sort of aromatic white wines, Pinot Gris and Gewurz and uh, and Riesling and things like that. It's definitely in that sort of oily aromatic territory. And yeah, the palate weight, 
it's quite light. It's clean. It's fresh. This is this is very much acid driven. There's not is not crazy amounts of of body structure and tannin. It's not to say that it's thin or insipid though. It's definitely something going on in the mouth. Nice structure. Uh, I totally agree uh, agree with you there, Martin. Sort of like a medium dry kind of sweetness. So there's nice palate weight, but it still leaves you wanting to come back for more. It's just something that you could probably enjoy quite happily on a warm summer's day. Um, nice with obviously cider and food is something we'll, we'll talk about as well and 5.5% alcohol so by no means uh, absolutely jaw judderingly alcoholic but certainly a little bit higher than the majority of mainstream ciders that you're able to get in the marketplace at four and a half percent so it's got a little bit more weight well I think we're going to enjoy I, I say we sorry I rephrase that. I would definitely enjoy it because I, I am liking it, and I do. I do definitely think there is some white wine comparisons in this, and even mm. the, chap, the mention of the Chapel Dan sparkling wines, which I think are absolutely excellent. Anyway, mm. there, I think there's a lot of comparison and similarities there. So I think I'll enjoy this while we get into the next segment in the show, Steve. Yeah, I, I think I think I'm going to enjoy it as, as as well. Actually, like I say, I wasn't. I, I didn't dislike it, which which I, I think I very I'll take much. That. Came... I'll take that. That's a start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're Gabe, not, I very much crying. came into this being fully prepared to hate everything that you've presented to, to us. I have a theory about why this his uh, mindset might be changed, but we can get into that later. As yeah, well. okay. Yeah, right. but no. While, while we're enjoying this, uh, Gabe, we will come back to you shortly. Uh, we are just going to go through a, a little bit of feedback from our listeners on the previous show. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know. Write it down. Let us know your thoughts and bitter in lingerness. Write it down. From Johnny Beerboy at Johnny Beerboy. Enjoyed listening on a foggy walk to work. Great news on the summer sesh. Some of our city's finest watering holes. I look forward to it. Also, chalk up an unexpected but enjoyable mini rant from Martin about conical half pint glasses. That's always going to get you, isn't it? Those, yeah. those, those half pint glasses. In fact, you could just swap conical for comical where yeah. those half pint glasses are concerned. Ronnie Bean, I enjoyed the show. Came home from my morning walk to order Utopian and Brass Castle beers. Also, summer sesh sounds great. My liver was dreading the thought of two full-on crawls. Happy to help, Ron. Always happy to help. And from Utopian Brewing. Thanks both. Just finished listening to the show. Very enjoyable as ever. Thanks for featuring and really pleased you enjoyed them. Enjoyed the beers. Did have a little chuckle when the beer tourist from Essex said, trouble with York, this is a bit too touristy. Bloody busy pubs. Yeah. I, I did have a chuckle about that myself because it, in, on reflection, yes, I was there as a tourist as, as well, moaning about how busy the city was. With other tourists. Yeah. Um, but no, it was it was great to see that the pub's that busy, which I, I think we said at the time, you know, it's, it's great to see that the industry's opening up again and oh, definitely. people are flocking back to pubs. From John Edwards, just ordered from Utopian, totally convinced their lager is well worth drinking. I'm also drinking Verdant's Dark Lager too. Prior to this, I couldn't drink it because lager is generally rubbish. I think we've, we've done some work there in changing John's mind. Yeah. From Rob L. Great show. I've been listening to some of the back catalogue recently and it was entertaining to listen to Opinions 15, which was probably the equivalent show in 2017. Guess which beer style people hoped thought was coming back then too? mild can't believe it's been mild has been recirculating in, in our <laughs> podcast for nearly five can't, years now can't believe you found it <laughs> I, I know i know from sean o'reilly 
getting an early listening this week regarding Utopian. Not that this is much use to you, but I've seen their beers in the artichoke in Norwich. In relation to the alt beer being not like lager or like an English bitter, I think that the dominance of Pilsner means that it's easy to fall into thinking that Pilsner defines what lager is. Also, the one and done rant reminded me of a Boken Bailey post from a few years ago on the seven ages of beer geek. I still like to try new beers, but I swerve some styles and breweries. And there are beers that I very much enjoy revisiting. I don't want to say any more on that particular piece that Boken Bailey wrote at this point, because I think we're going to try and incorporate that into a future show. Definitely. Aren't we, where we talk about those seven ages of beer and talk about where we are in regards to our particular journeys. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah I think I, I did reread it. It is very good. Actually. It's, it's a very good piece. Yeah. Yeah. We will put a link in the show notes. Yeah. So it's, people can have a read of that in, in preparation for when we sink our teeth in. Yeah. But that last comment from Sean, don't you think that dovetails and segues quite nicely into the whole thing about cider as well? I think so. Yeah. Because the preconception of what cider can be to a lot of people and even the one we've got in the glass now, it's we've got it nicely chilled, but it's not overly gassy. It's no. not fizzy. Um, and obviously we'll we'll bring in the expert. And I think that that actually helps me drink it as well. I don't get me wrong, I like a bit of fizz now and again, but that's probably the one of the things a lot of people do remember as well from some of their cider experiences. Mm-hmm. You can feel very bloated on all that gas. So I I'm I'm I am in I am enjoying the cider. Are you still enjoying it? I've I've not really had much more of it yet oh in that case it's a yes <laughs> <laughs> i think we should bring bring gabe back in here on this one well you, you did mention an expert and seeing as we've got an actual bona fide expert with us then should we ask the basic question let's 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 ask the question that probably everybody wants us to ask um what is cider it's, it is quite a fundamental question isn't it really uh, what it is it's a fruit fermentation it is the fermentation of apple juice. So the alcohol is derived from the fermentation of apple juice, those um, natural apple sugars, fructose, sucrose, and glucose converted into alcohol by yeast. That So that in its most kind of rudimentary is where it is. So in, in that respect, you, and you make cider. You don't brew cider, you make cider because brewing is the application of heat to extract something. Um, no need for any of that with cider because you're squeezing the fruit, you're extracting the juice, and it's the fermentable sugars already contained within the fruit that is, that is giving you that alcohol. So from a making perspective, you make cider considerably quite closely to making a wine. If we're thinking about it, the selection of particular varietals that each have their own flavors, properties, and characteristics um, and you, yeah, you then squish them, you extract juice, yeast, whether it be spontaneous or introduced, converts those sugars into alcohol. And then depending upon the vessel that you then, um, from, uh, you know, mature in, and also then what processing you do downstream, you get presentations of different uh, clarities and carbonations uh, and flavor profiles. So in, in that regard, cider and wine have, have a number of similarities, but I will be hasten to add at this point that cider isn't wine cider shares a lot of things with wine um i think one of the fundamental things for cider at the moment is to ensure that it has its own voice and its own narrative so cider is cider very much but from that from that production perspective 
um, classically shares a lot with wine, but also a little bit on the production aspect of things, but certainly on the presentation point of view and how the consumer sees it and knows it, um, it is often a bit more like a beer. And, you know, case in point here, we're drinking out of a 440 mil can. Uh, a lot of ciders are carbonated. They're single serve or it can be, you know, crown capped in a bottle. You get it on pints. The alcohol on average across broader kind of category is nearer to an, an average beer. And I know that there's a great breadth, uh, you know, within that, but certainly somewhere between four and eight rather than north of 11, which is what the majority of wines would be. Um, so it sits classically and historically in this interesting mid space between beer and wine, and, and it can sort of grab bits from both and it can grab consumers from both as well. And on the one hand, that's, that side is great opportunity and it's a great benefit to it that it is quite versatile and it, and it can do lots of different things and bring in different drinkers but i also think it means that for lots of people it, it's a little bit confused as well or that as we will maybe talk about now that certain experiences of something called cider takes that drinker <laughs> steve to therefore um besmirch the good name of all ciders because of a bad experience now Steve, it's okay. I'm not having a go at you because I, I do quite a lot of, you know, talks and tastings and a lot of cider training, and I'm going to do multiple gratuitous plugs through the course of this podcast. So I'll save those for later. Um, but one of the questions I of course ask is, you know, if you were to go on the street and to ask people, what, 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 what does cider mean to you? Or what do you think about cider? Or what experiences or emotions have you got about cider? It's the same ones that always pop up. It's, I drank too much at a house party when I was 14 and violently threw up over my mate Dave. It's I used to slope away and have th three litres of, of white lightning with my friends on, <laughs> on the park bench. It's I went on holiday when I was a kid with my parents down to down to Devon. We went to the old farmhouse. Old Farmer Brown bought out, you know, four points of old leg bender. And dad downed him in an hour and a half. And guess what? He fell in the ditch. And my, how we all heartily laughed, but we didn't drink it because it was just vinegary and it was really, really rank. Or it's just incredibly sweet and it's basically just an alcopop. Or yeah, I'll have it on a summer's day at a festival, but otherwise, nah, it's not my kind of drink. Beyond that, there are often there are very few positive kind of thoughts or processes associated about what cider is not least that there isn't any diversity or range of different types or style of cider it's just that very you know you go into a pub and it's you know there's never been a better time to be a drinker it is amazing go into any pretty much go into any pub that isn't like a you know a real old sort of wet pub uh, and you'll be presented with a range of hopefully some really nice sort of cascales and there will be some lagers there will be absolutely necessarily the ubiquitous two or three ipas as well but maybe if you're somewhere a bit interesting there might be a mild possibly you never know or a hoppy lager or it could be that there's you know a saison or berliner weister or whatever it may be and then you look at the wine list and you've got fantastic you know malbec and cabernet sauvignon and a merlot and in the whites you've got a you've got a chardonnay and you've got a sauvignon blanc and you've got a pinot grigio the the gin list is 19 long and then you've got the cider because you know cider's just cider so why would we possibly need more than one cider because it's just you know cider and that isn't the case there is an incredible array and diversity of flavors styles 
and types of cider based upon, as I've already mentioned, apple variety, process, um, and whether any other sort of characters have been added in there too. And so it's kind of my passion and my job to try and get people to be aware that there is this range in diversity because because I, I understand because because I know that I think people just people are just not aware that anything beyond what's in their mind scrumpy white lightning strongbow recordly that's pretty much the gamut of of what cider is and you know to be fair that is quite a lot of the volume of what cider is in the UK but so is so is, so is carling I'm not going to say that there's anything wrong with carling but carling is you know the UK's biggest volume lager brand not all consumers know you know people know that you've got carling and you've got cloud water with wine you've got you know blue nun and you've got barolo with cider it's, it's the same there's a massive range of flavors and different types of ciders for different for different consumers and so this is the big part of what i'm trying to i'm trying to endeavor with my work I think that's really interesting. Uh, before we go any further, I'm going to ask Steve which category he falls into. I'm going to go the, in that former couple of examples that Gabe gave. Uh, yeah, it was, well, it, it was a first visit to a pub and deciding that I was going to drink five pints of Strongbow that, that night. And and it, it wasn't all over my mate Dave, but it was all over. It was, it was all over my bedroom. After, after that. So, um, yeah, uh, and and ever ever since I've I've been one of one of those people that um, simply the smell of somebody drinking uh, a pint of cider in the pub turns my stomach because it brings it, it all back. It, it associates with that memory. How, however, this first one that we're drinking tonight didn't do that it, it didn't it didn't bring back those memories because it, it wasn't I guess I guess the aromas were potentially more natural yeah ra rather than more um kind of false yeah, so in, in terms process. of what I might be in strongbow and I suppose we can sort of delve into that as well isn't there you know that what's sure. the, the difference between you know what we might want to class for people who are used to us talking about beer your macro versus yeah. your independent and your craft but yeah yeah i think i think the aroma from this is vastly different mm. i mean you can tell that they're in it's in that family same as you can um a lager from donzoku it's still a lager as much as you know the aforementioned carling but this is i think this is a vastly different but i'll be honest you're probably still never going to start with this my my experience was when a friend of mine was at um university i mean i didn't have a bad experience but it was having cider and black or snake bite was the closest i came to drinking well, sure. and this this is this is the thing is that for lots of people cider is often one of their first kind of experimental drinks and i think it's because um it historically for, for the last 60 years um has been quite a cheap drink it's, it was converted into a into a cheap drink um, and because of the nature of it being this fruit fermentation, it's something that you can load with quite a lot of sugar if you also have the commensurate acidity and or tannin structure as well to, to counterbalance with them. So it can be quite easy drinking as well. So easy drinking and cheap um, means, yeah, early drinking experiences, student drinking, drinking to excess, guess what happens um your bedroom gets plastered in a new shade of something <laughs> um and you know these are deeply 
rooted emotive experiences you know like whenever you you smell that you are transported back to that time and that occasion and that is synonymous with not so good i'm gonna i'm gonna hazard a guess here steve that you might maybe on occasion in the intervening years might have overindulged on some beer possibly you might have overindulged on some wine or some tequila or something like that but i bet that those experiences don't preclude you from continuing to have those drinks. There is something about it being an early experience and also not kind of knowing, you know, not knowing that there are different types of ciders and, and that thinking or assuming that all ciders might have that experience or might taste the same or just you don't place any value in trying to sort of push through and try to find different stuff. And to be fair, it wouldn't have been easy for you to find the different stuff until, you know, really five years ago, 10 years ago, you would have had to go out of your way to go and find the cider farms, to go there, the little independent producers. But today it, it, it's a whole different, it's a whole different kettle of fish. And yeah, I very much hope that, you know, you will, you will you'll be, a, you'll be a big boy, big, big brave. Uh, and, you know, we'll try these other two ciders and try a couple more and maybe you'll start a little bit of a cider journey cost or at least being willing to have a crack and if and but to be fair if you don't like cider it, as a whole you don't like cider if you don't like the taste of hops you're not gonna like beer if you don't like the taste of malt you're not gonna like beer uh, and there are plenty of people who just simply don't like uh, a broader flavor aspect of, of any given drink so um, i'm not gonna be able to convince everybody sure you know what you were saying about you'd have to find if you know prior to five or ten years ago you'd have to find it you'd have to look for it so you know we're talking about one of the, a random farm somewhere typically a lot of it in the in the in the south of england as well um and going back to what you were saying about his, the way it was it's made historically that you know it's basically the fruit is a bit well pretty much everything is that one of the reasons why little farmsteads if they had apple trees or access to apples they started making cider. Was that essentially the reason why? Because it is relatively easy to do? So I suppose fundamentally, again, one of the major differences between cider and beer is that cider historically is something tied to the land. It is a, it is, it's a rurally produced drink because cider was made where apples grew and that tended and still tends to be in the main, certainly for any kind of commerciality in the southern part of, of the UK. Uh, historically, the southeast of England is synonymous with the growing of dessert apples, eating apples and cooking apples, um, especially because it was servicing a, a large population in London. And then different types of apples came into the UK post-Norman conquest um, from, from Normandy and from Brittany, uh, Brittany different types of, of apples grown specifically for making cider that contain quite a lot of tannin tannin like you would get in a in, in a red wine let's say or in tea or coffee providing some mouthfeel structure some quite bold phenolic aromatic characters and some bitterness and some potentially some mouth drying uh, astringency and they actually found their home in the west and in the southwest and, and is the most you know closely synonymous kind of apples with with broader cider making in the uk i think that people would know which is possibly why this one uh, the cider that you're drinking now um, maybe it's a little bit different because it hasn't got any of those tannic characters. It is just light and fresh and clean and fruit driven. Um, and so where, whereas brewing 
Uh, it's not to say that brewing wasn't uh, and, and isn't still done in, in rural landscapes. It is, of course, but uh, it would be fair to say, and, and please tell me if I am wrong here, that, you know, it's real growth and development was synonymous with, with, with cities, with industry, and because it could be brewed right in the heart of where the big populations were. Cider making, you need the apples, apples grown on the farm. It was, it was a, a rural enterprise. It did, it did not become the concept of cider business didn't really come to pass until the very end of the 19th century. Before that, it was just really a rural pursuit where every farm would have had an orchard and made cider for, for the family, for the labor force. The, the labor, laborers were part paid in cider. It was called truck. Um, and maybe to sell a little bit to a, to a merchant who would take it off to Bristol or down to London. So, you know, it is so cru uh, you know, crucially rooted in, in, in a rural environment and context um and and again the other element of it is to understand because you're making it a bit more like a wine we are talking about an annual harvest you gather your apples in the autumn from you know the, the very earliest apples discovery and things like that's probably at the very end of august and the majority of the you know western counties apples the high tannic apples they're coming into play in october and november maybe even december kind of sometimes as well um, and so you're gathering the fruit, you're squeezing, you're extracting the juice, fermentation is taking place, they're maturing, and then you're packaging it and you're selling it, and then you start all over again. The major difference, obviously, with brewing is that you can establish your brew whenever you want on demand, and that you can scale up and you can, you know, go down um, very, very easily. So cider doesn't, with, with wine, that's less of an issue because you're gaining so much more value per, per litre because the trade and the consumer has what I call like a high value perception of that drink. They are willing to spend dosh on that for, var for various reasons. One of them being alcohol. You're willing to pay more if you've got more booze in there. But I think for other, other reasons, uh, maybe some of the more emotive reasons that we were just discussing before. So it, it has the same sort of volume production of wine, but doesn't have the value of wine um it's got a similar value perception that beer has it's got, but it's got nowhere near the opportunity to have the volume you know a a, a brewer can have one 1000 liter vessel let's say and they could uh, ferment once a month and produce 12000 liters of beer a cider maker could produce 1000 liters of cider in that annual period so it, it, it has quite a lot of challenges against it because because it is viewed as a cheaper drink um, it's not very easy for cider makers to um, to to achieve that easy volume and, and for it to be a viable enterprise. And it's only a say latterly that we're starting to get into post, you know, independent craft beer kind of movement that consumers are starting to really understand and value that this is a this is a you know an indigenous drink. It's a local drink. It's a drink with heritage. It's a drink potentially made with great skill and care and with interesting kind of flavor profiles and processes. And that actually it is worth spending a few more, more quid on. And that is for helping and facilitating some, some new growth. Well, I don't think anyone can doubt the passion in your voice, Gabe, but, Come on. but bear in mind everything you've just said, why, why are you, why, why, what is your, what's led you to become a bit of a cider champion? It's a good question. People don't get involved with cider for the money. I'll tell you that. All cider makers <laughs> are utterly bonkers. There is no viable reason why anybody should try and make cider as their job. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, so for me, 
it's all about um, it's all about sense of place. It's where I'm from. So I'm from a little village called Dimmock, which sits right on the uh, Herefordshire Gloucestershire border, and it's you know cider countries often sort of solely synonymous with uh, with, with Somerset or, or or Devon, and those are true you know proud heartland areas of of cider making. But actually, Gloucestershire and, and Herefordshire, especially historically, very strongly associated with cider making, and today is the world's largest cider making uh, area, largely down to the fact that uh, Bulmers, now owned by Heineken, uh, it has its primary cider making facility in the heart of the city still, and that's where um, many hundred millions of litres of Strongbow is made every year, very proudly by the Herefordians. Um, and so growing in that, in that place... I first of all kind of got it's my, it's my granny's fault basically not because she like took me boozing when I was young but she took me on like walks through the fields and through the orchards and gave me an understanding that there was a sort of cultural heritage and significance to these orchards and to these apples and eventually I reckon I, I knew that that turned into this lovely this lovely libation this liquid and so I started drinking it um, and I drank you know macro stuff you know stuff in stuff in funnily enough at that time in 440 mil cans um, and then, uh, you know, uh, or 500 mil cans or pint cans, if you would like get a real bargain down at Budgeons and, and enjoyed that. But then I was in the village next door has Western cider and gosh, you know, 20 years ago, Western's organic cider from Sainsbury's or any other retailer is pretty good too. I'm sure this was like really intensely flavored, awesome kind of cider. It's like, this is really good. So I used to go and visit Western's with my brother. And then really enjoyed that and started to get to understand it a bit more and eventually um, wound up at a small cider farm. Herefordshire then and, and today produces a cider root leaflet that lists, you know, 20 plus sort of farm scale cider makers. And so, do you know, it's, it's nearly 20 years to the day. It was the summer in, in 2002. And so my brother, you know, we've had this map in hand. This is pre pre-technology not pre any technology but certainly pre-google maps or anything like that so i was actually doing some map reading putting my um putting my geography degree to excellent use here that was many many thousands of pounds well spent just getting reading a map to go to the cider farm and we turn off the main road and suddenly we're down a little lane it's one of those lanes you know when both of your wing mirrors are getting whacked by the hedgerows <laughs> like where the bloody hell are we expecting like Frodo to run across the road. It's like you're in the heart of the Shire. And there's a little sign that says cider. And so we turn a left, then a right, then a right, then a left. And suddenly there's this driveway and we go up and we're there. We're at Broom Farm, the home of the Ross on Wye Cider and Perry Company, which is actually going to be the next cider that we'll try in a little bit. And it's brilliant. There's this beautiful big old farmhouse and there's a little sign that says the cellar is this way so we trundle over and there's a doorway that's obviously leading underneath the house to the cellar but in chalk it says there pull string for cider so there's a bit of baler twine sort of hanging off and so we <laughs> give it a really good yank and ding-a-ling-ling the bell duly does does ring away and this very genial chap mike mike johnson pokes his head out the door and goes hello and he then sort of opens up the door to the cellar. And you remember that scene from Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark when the light sort of comes down into the map room and it's, ah, you know, it's all that kind of moment. Well, that's what it was like as the light shone on these amazing wooden barrels uh, stacked in this amazing stone flagged cellar underneath this 17th century farmhouse. And we sort of ducked inside and went in there and Mike went to one of the barrels, uh, opened up the wooden tap and poured away and said, 
here you go. This is a dry cider. And I can't remember exactly how the cider tasted, but I remember the sensation, which was just that every single part of my mouth just exploded with with apolliness, but with grippy astringency, with woody, earthy, kind of phenolic kind of characters. It must have been. And I was just utterly blown away and enraptured. And quite quickly, after drinking probably a few more, uh, decided I want to do cider. Now I didn't. I had no idea what doing cider meant. It meant first of all just drinking quite a lot. For a few years. <laughs> Finishing my degree, coming home, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Saved some money, did a backpack around the world, and then I, I ended up back on Mike's doorstep. You know, four four years later, and he said, "Do you want a job?" I was like, "Yes, please." And he needed somebody to help him doing the harvest that year, and so. And so I did. I lived in a shed in the garden, quite literally, and I learned how to make classic farmhouse Herefordshire cider. And I just understood that it it brought together all my interests, um, sort of like local culture and history and heritage, uh, fermentation, a little bit of science in there, wildlife and landscape, and of course booze as well. You know, it just brought it just it just made so much sense and. Since then, I have just been on the most wonderful, bonkers kind of cider journey, just having a crack at it and, you know, being having a, a sort of positive kind of can do or, or will try mindset. Um, I don't know. It has, it's led me to um, this, this, this position where I am today and I've been to some of the most amazing places and met some of the most amazing people and just just had just had a good time let's be fair i'm earning money from talking about and drinking cider so i must be doing something right uh, well it's an amazing story <laughs> yeah. tasting cider in 2002 your senses going bonkers and then turning up four four years later and starting this this journey of you know it becoming a career so to yeah. speak um, just a before we move on, I mean, I met, you mentioned about like Normandy. So that, that bit of France is very big for its cider, isn't it? It is. Yeah. You know, we talk about, you can talk about the old world of cider making a bit like old world wine, I suppose, if you want to. And certainly northern, northern France. So Normandy and Brittany, northern Spain, Asturias, the Basque country, Galicia, very old, possibly the oldest cider culture there, actually. And then, yes, the Normans brought the, not, not the concept of cider making, that does go back a little bit further, but certainly a culture of cider making was really enforced and brought in post-Norman conquest into the UK. Also, the western parts of Germany around Frankfurt, the Hessen region is a very strong heritage of Apfelwein production over there too. Uh, but there's, yeah, there's, there's, today, cider is made all over the world. Wherever there are apples, cider is made. And just last week, that took me to Norway, and I've been to Japan, and we can talk about the USA is the most exciting and burgeoning cider market in the world. Uh, and we can even talk about the, 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 the cider maker that I met in Zimbabwe last month. You know, where it is a global thing. Uh, it's very, very exciting. I think that is interesting, because I remember when I went to Spain a few years ago, I was having, well, they called it Sidra, That's where right. I was. And they do the whole theatre thing, big bottle pour it really high into the glass. It does involve a bit of spillage, in, even by the experts and stuff. Um, or you can just have the bottle and sort of sit outside in the sun. And that was like three or four euros for a, a bottle of Sidra. It was just absolutely delicious. And also one of those things of 
time and place, the setting you're in, of course, the weather. And it was like, yeah, I could do another bottle of this. So I did. And I'm not sure it was the best idea I'd had on a hot sunny afternoon, but it was still very tasty. And I think maybe people don't always realise that cider is maybe bigger than the southwest of England. That's right. You know, to be fair, the UK is the world's largest producer and consumer of cider by quite a considerable margin. Um, because as far as the those old world nations are concerned, it's the only one where cider broke out of its sort of regional production confines to become a national drink. If, even if that national drink for for most people was 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 a uh, a macro and kind of mainstream drink, but you can say cider to anybody in the UK and they kind of know it, and they will be able to purchase something called cider wherever they are. That's not necessarily true in Spain. If you're going into southern Spain or you're going to eastern Spain, you know, maybe somewhere you'd be able to find, find a bottle. But it's not a given that you'll find it in every single bar or in every single uh, bottle shop, possibly. Same with, same with France, often. You know, it's in, those, in those nations, it's often viewed as being, you know, the very rustic drink, the peasant drink, the drink that's made where it's bloody cold and wet and like Britain, i.e. kind of like the north and the west of those respective kind of nations. So it has a very, it has a different it has a different meaning within those kind of countries. But that still doesn't mean that quite a considerable amount is made. If Asturias was a country, it's a, you know, it's a region within northern Spain. If it was a country, um, it would be by far the greatest per capita consumption of cider. You know, they drink liters and liters of the stuff. You know, we think about cider in the, in, in the, in the West Country being part of our kind of culture. And it is an important part. But in, if you go to Gijón or if you go to Oviedo, is the culture you know everything centers around these cedarias it's the place where you go to socialize to drink obviously to eat it's where the crash is you know it's just where everything is centered around this and it's it's absolutely amazing and there are other all these little places you go to go to frankfurt and go to the old town go to saxonhausen all those old pubs they're all cider pubs um, that's what they're serving there that's what you're having your giant knuckle of pork with is a bimblesworth of, of amazing kind of apple vines. So there is a whole world of cider out there. The problem is there's very little of it in the UK. And so there's little visibility and little knowledge. The, the reason then the way that people know that there is cider in Asturias or Galicia is that they've been to Asturias or Galicia or Normandy or Brittany. Um, again, but part because of cider's um, low value perception, it's not really economical to you know, export it out of that country and into the UK. Or if it did, that bottle that cost you kind of two euros when you're there in Spain suddenly cost six or seven quid when it's over here. And you might go, cider, six pounds? What am I going to do that for? It's only cider, which I would say, obviously, is not the correct response. We want to be saying that, mm, this is really interesting. This is amazing cider from, from Spain. I wonder what it's like. Let's let's get into it like you might do with a Belgian beer, for example. You're not You're not going to... You're not going to balk at paying a few extra quid because it's made in a different place and it's cost a few more quid to get it imported in here. So it is a constant process. It is still really hard to get international ciders easily in the UK, but I say it is starting to get there. I think that's all fascinating because Gabe's been doing all the talking. <laughs> We've both finished our first drink yeah, quite some time ago. Any final thoughts on it, Steve? Uh, I enjoyed it. You, you can hear the surprise in my voice there. <laughs> Um, although I will say I enjoyed it more at the start when it was cold and a little bit fizzier 
as it started to warm up and started to lose the carbonation, it started becoming a little bit sweet for me and a, a, a little bit sticky sweet and, and maybe have some of those characteristics that I was expecting. However, like I said, I enjoyed it. It was it was drinkable enough. And again, we, we say this so often, don't we, the time and the place. Yes. I sat in a beer garden on a hot summer's afternoon, uh, a pint of that would be absolutely refreshing. It, it would be ultimately refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I thought slightly differently to you about where it went because I, I did feel it was like having a chilled white wine but then started to warm up a little bit. I want to say warm up start to come up to room temperature and you start to just get a bit more of the flavour and the aroma. But again, I was looking forward to that, whereas you maybe had that little bit of sense of trepidation mm. about it. Um, but my brief theory is that maybe you're a little bit more welcoming um, to cider now because your your experience with things like Belgian beers and some of those uh, wild fermented, well, beers and other, other drinks, you've got bit more used to having them so some, maybe some of those characteristics are yeah, yeah, in your yeah, mind their, their, their flavors and their characteristics and their things that i'm used to from uh, a wild beer or a mixed fermentation beer or a sour beer even you, you know you can see you can see the character you can see the, the commonalities there yeah but, but between that those the, the, the cider and as i say the more sort of wild fermentation Beers. Chaps, don't delay. If 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 those are the kinds of beers that you're into, try this next cider. Is all I'm going to say to you, and then I'm just going to watch your face as you take that sip. Okay. Well, why I pull this out? Why don't you? Uh, why don't you share with us and the listeners what we're about to uh, dive into? All right. So this uh, comes from the Ross and Weiss Cider and Perry Company, which is where my epiphany happened 20 years ago this summer. It is a wild ferment cider, as all their ciders are, and it's a blend of three apple varietals, Dimmock Red, Harry Masters Jersey, and Foxwelp, which I'll tell you all about um, in a minute. Um, and, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a very, very different sensation to the last one. What's sale to you, boys? What's sale? <laughs> Sorry. What's sale? What's sale? Steve just pulled his face. Even quicker. Oh, that's dry. So, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, Gabe can see Steve's face on the other side of the on the other side of the screen. Um, nah, straight away I could smell red apple when we when I opened the bottle. There was red apple, and that was quite quite strong. It's a really dry, moisture sucking dryness uh, as well. Um, is almost like the initial characteristic. I mean, I think it's probably again for me, you got much more in common with having a very dry white wine than what I would associate with cider if I was using inverted commas for that. Mm -hmm. um, I'll let, maybe, uh, Gabe, you can tell us a little bit more about it while sure. Steve's... Recovering. Yeah. Have a lie down, Steve. So <laughs> here's the thing. The vast majority of ciders presented to two drinkers in the UK have some degree of sweetness and often quite a lot of sweetness in there. But it doesn't have to be the case because almost every single cider and liter of cider produced in the country, bar the tiniest fraction, every amount of it will start its life bone dry because fermentation converts all of those sugars into alcohol. If it's just that the consumer 
wants, or is at least told that they want to have something with a degree of sweetness. And very often that's quite a large degree of sweetness, as I've said. So here is a cider that has no sugar, but not only does it not have any sugar, this is a classic, what I would say, Western counties style of cider. And I'm saying counties rather than West country because Herefordshire, which is, you know, a key integral part of the Western sort of cider scene technically is not in the West country, but it certainly is West. So this is made with classic varieties that contain large amounts of tannin. So not only has it got no sugar, but that astringency, that mouth drying, that mouth puckering, cotton mouth sensation, that is what is making you chew and chomp your mouth quite a lot. It's also got quite a lot of bitterness in there as well. Yeah. We've also got from the tannins, from a flavor perspective, we've got a we've got a woodiness, we've got an earthiness as well. Because it's a spontaneous fermentation and because there is um, little by way of sort of sulfur control in here, we also have quite a lot of, of other microflora uh, imparting uh, its impact over here, whether it be kind of lactic acid bacteria or Britannomyces yeast possibly as well, which is giving a little bit of spice, a little bit of funk on the nose. Um, each one of those three varieties, Dimmock Red, Harry Masters Jersey, has different properties. Dimmock Red, so Dimmock is, you know, that's the village that I'm from. So this is a variety that's named after the village that I'm from. So I'm very proud of that, obviously. That's what you call a bit of sharp. Uh, but it's a specific kind of bit of sharp. It's, it's quite, um, it's quite fruity. It's got nice, nice soft astringency, quite low acidity. Foxwhelp, on the other hand, is again another really old apple variety from the forest. Dean, that's got really high electric levels of acidity, almost like riesling levels of acidity, but really intense fruitiness at the same time. The Harry Masters Jersey, that's the one that is turning your face inside out. That is the provider of the astringency. So this is a big, bold, uncompromising dry cider. But once it does take a few sips to get used to, if you've never had something like this before, like if you had never tasted a Gers before or a Double, or if you'd never tasted a Berliner Weisse or any of those drinks, it's going to be alien until you've kind of had a few tastes. And maybe if you understand a little bit of the context of like how it is made. Again, you know, for somebody who's used to drinking a lager, they drink a Gers, they're going to think that something very badly has gone wrong with that beer. If there is somebody there to guide them and to teach them and to say, no, no, it's, it's okay, this is what we're expecting and this is how and this is why, then with a bit of time, they may enjoy it. They may also never, ever enjoy it. And, you know, Steve, I think that maybe you just don't like cider. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. I, I think I think it's it's been interesting because it, as you was talking and explaining it there, one of the things that, that you said that, that I picked up on straight away was you said about sulfur. And I have to say that that when Martin handed me the glass and I smelt it, the first thing I thought was that someone had farted in my glass. I that's that's what it smelt like to me, and that that instantly mm. put me off. I hundred percent understand that. Yeah, it, it it's not you know, I will say. It is not a character that is desirable. <laughs> it's yeah. fair to no, say there I are, never want that in my glass. Thank you very much. There are all sorts of there are all sorts of um, sensory characters, you know, flaws which, depending upon the balance, the integration, the context, the style, you know, is you know acetic acid and different things like that, where where there is some acceptability or or even expectation possibly. Um, hydrogen sulfide isn't really one of them and it can be one of the challenges by producing some of these kind of ciders but i bet it's it's gone from the glass that would have gone instantaneously it would have flashed off after 20 seconds in the glass that's not to say that you didn't smell it and it didn't put you off it that, that is that is a challenge i cannot deny that 
It, no, it's. I, I agree. It, it's gone. That Roma's not there any, mm. anymore. And I, I do also agree with, with the other thing you said that it's it, it, after a couple of sips, actually, it's getting it's getting easier for me to drink. That 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 first sip that I had of it was a real a real challenge to my my taste buds. I, I didn't know what was going on, um, and and the, a lot of what was going on I wasn't enjoying. But on on subsequent sips, it's getting easier. To, to drink and I, I do just want to pick up on something that Martin said as well about um about the red apples mm. that that's a characteristic now that's really coming through because I think when when you eat a red apple that the skin of a red apple has a very very particular taste to it and it, and it does it does linger around yeah. in 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 the mouth once you, you can you know you can almost feel for for a good half an hour after you've had a red apple those flavors are still there they're still going on yeah and I'm picking up a lot of that now in, in this and and I, I do think it was that it was it was just such a stark difference to the first side yep. that we had that it has taken me a couple of sips to, to get used to it but also Gabe yeah maybe I just don't like cider well yeah no quite and you know the, for you know as you, you're obviously you're massive beer fans and beer advocates and you want to try and and turn as many people onto onto beer sorry and 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 you'll do so by trying to understand their other drinking preferences and so you'll find the type of beer that suits what kind of you know wine they like to drink or what a, what food match they like to enjoy and for a proportion of people they'll just go I don't like hops or malt or, or or acetic acid if it, you know for a spontaneous you know they're just you're not going to get everybody and this is and this is crucial and fundamental is that cider is no different from you know beer or any other of those drinks or any foods that we do or don't enjoy we as drinks industry professionals we could make an assessment of beer in your case and cider in my case and you could say that that these two very very different drinks are very very good exponents of their individual styles it's up to you as to whether you personally like style a or style b you might like both you might like one you might like neither and that's okay but the crucial thing is is that you've just tried two ciders here that you recognize at least as being very very different well guess what there's 500 different ciders out there that all completely different um that cider isn't just a singular thing, just as, you know, you, you wouldn't dream of trying to categorize beer as a singular thing. You can't even break it down into 12 easy things. It's probably like 274. And even then you're going to be, you know, breaking down the minutiae of different kind of things and different characters into it, as you should do, because that's fun and you can explore. And it's exactly the same with cider. So, Steve, you may be lost cause, but I think there's still a tiny degree of hope. I'm going to cling on for the last cider. But for anybody out there, again, who isn't, who's just unsure about cider or they've had, you know, they've had a bad experience, have a crack. Think about, speak to somebody who's, who's, who's like into cider or knowledgeable or speak to a bottle shop or online retailers or cider makers and get them and have a chat with them about what your other drinks that you really like are. And they should hopefully be able to at least guide you in a direction of, of a particular cider that might at least give you some kind of entrance way into the world of cider. That's, that, that's actually a great segue into 
finding out what some of our listeners think think about this as well because I think it came as quite a surprise to some of our listeners when we announced we were going to be doing a side show <laughs> just uh, a bit. There, there was a bit of but you're a beer podcast and we're like yeah but it's it's been we've been going for 10 years now and we've never touched cider and the two as you've said many times Gabe are very closely mm. related so what we did um we asked a, a question of, of our listeners. Opinions, 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 opinions. Which was basically, um, do you enjoy cider as an alternative to beer? So we had 484 votes on this one. Uh, 55.6% of people saying no, and 44.4% of people saying yes. Oh, I'll take that. That's awesome. So it's pretty. It was a pretty close one. It's sort of second second week in a row where we had quite a close close vote. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, from my perspective, that is massively, massively encouraging because I want to see more beer drinkers sort of at, at, at least trial and dabble and and have a play within the within the cider spectrum. I think it's again, I think because of the way that it is produced and that the you know. The breakdown of the, the the sugars and the acids and the tannins, etc. We're talking about things that, unless for certain types um, of beers and those more kind of spontaneous or or sour type beers, we're talking about characters that just physically are, are not present within beer. So we're inherently talking about two very very different drinks. It's just that over the course of time, um, from a certainly from a UK perspective, that cider has been in the broad spectrum, shoehorned into being uh, into being like a, a beer alternative and a beer replica. Opportunity for gratuitous plug number one. I wrote a book quite recently called Modern British Cider, available now. Thank you very much. And it's an overview of what does cider look like today? Where has it come from? What are the uh, opportunities and challenges, uh, you know, now and going forward and a list of 101 of the best cider makers in the country. It's a riveting read. Please do go and buy it. But the interesting bit for me was that I didn't really know and understand how and why does cider look like now. And so it was the focus on sort of post-1945 to understand what steps happened. And, you know, single biggest influences were uh, changes in consumer drinking habits, pub, a bit more discretionary spend, and, you know, when kegged lager and when kegged ale came in um, and revolutionized that drinking experience in the pub and the types of drinks, well, guess what? Cider, uh, Strongbow was produced very, very uh, deliberately by H.P. Bulmer to be a lager type drink, to be consumed in a, in a lager fashion, four and a half percent alcohol. Um, and on the same occasions, it, it's a it's a marketing masterpiece in every single way. Very masculine drink always has been, you know, Strongbow and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's very, very strongly been driven down that way from a way that it's meant to be viewed and consumed very largely. But inherently, they're entirely different drinks. So it's actually quite hard for some for, for somebody to go, I really fancy a beer, but I, they haven't got one in the bar. I'll, I'll just have a cider instead and I'll get the exact same experience. No, you won't. It's like saying, no, oh, they haven't got any beer. I'll have a pint of Merlot instead. You're, that's, you're, in, you're in a hole that's going to be a different experience. It's a different thing. And it's the same kind of with cider. So it's not an easy substitution. So the fact that 45% of people 
were willing to at least give it a crack, as I say, I think is quite heartening. Well, I think also considering that our audience is a beer audience. Yeah. It's, it is, isn't it? So, you know, we were, we were asking this question and it, it, it shouldn't have been unexpected that, that the higher percentage was leaning towards no. But it was still closer than I expected it to be. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think I think some of the comments really bring that to life as well, don't they? Exactly. So first up from Mark Johnson, a great question. Not one I voted on in case I'm reading it wrong. I enjoy cider as an alternative in the same way that I like the occasional wine, gin, rum, etc. That's where it sits for me, rather than living parallel to my beer experiences. Johnny Garrett, I hit yes, but I really enjoy it as an alternative to wine, something to share at the table or nurse for an evening. I guess it's also an alternative to Lambic. And then from Simon Dewhurst, I like the occasional cider and it has been great to see camera embrace it too through beer festivals and books. As an aside, I think for a long time, non-alcoholic ciders have eclipsed non-alcoholic beers, but I think the gap has closed in the last couple of years. From Mark Shirley at RF Cider. I enjoy beer as an alternative to cider because there's <laughs> so little really good dry cider available, particularly in pubs. Mike McGuire? Yes, but only on a location basis. If I'm in an area that is renowned for quality cider, then I'll definitely sink a few. However, I won't seek out cider just because the beer selection is poor. Cider beer reviews? Yes, I enjoy a good cask cider, especially Fistley Cross. For Dr Goggles? Yes, I drank cider for years before getting a taste of beer. Nothing exciting, though, just the macro cider you get in pubs. I still like a proper cider if you can get it, though, and there are some good ones about. From Grain Schooner Kirkcaldy, cider has managed to build a base of solid producers dedicated to the cause, the process and the varietals that have got me back on board. From Adam Nicholson, pretty much had to due to limited availability or interest to brew or serve gluten-free beers. At a beer festival recently, I had to prop up the cider bar due to there only being three gluten-free beers available. And then finally from the Owl Lady, nope, cider does not like me, or rather, it likes me too much. I can drink a 12% barrel-aged imperial stout and still operate heavy machinery. <laughs> Give me a 5% cider and I'll probably mistake Ronald for the kettle. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fair point, actually, that there, there is lots of anecdotal evidence, and hopefully it will be the focus of someone's PhD one day, that there the nature of the way that 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 um that cider the alcohols the ethanol with it from from cider production uh, is different to that which is produced kind of from beer and for some people does make them just go a little bit cuckoo it can have these impacts but then also to to the previous comment cider's great a no, number of cider's great advantages naturally gluten-free obviously there's no uh we're not talking about any any wheat in the process here too uh, also, there are no findings uh, necessary within the cider making kind of process, whether they be animal based or, you know, the increasing number of potato based or vegetable based that they may be, or indeed hazy beers um, that don't necessitate any kind of finding uh, either intentionally either. So, you know, there, there are a number of different things that, are, that cider has kind of going for it alongside it being just, you know, generally an awesome drink. There's a, there's a couple of comments I want to pick up on. So there was one there from... Um, cyber beer review saying I enjoy a good cask cider. Now, when I went down to Plymouth a few times to see my son in university, they've got the cider house down there. So I was looking forward to having essentially a lot of choice of cider on tap and maybe some of it as in the equivalent of cask. Um, 
but they just still had lots of cider in boxes, which I found a little mm. bit disappointing. I'll be honest. Mm. Cider mm. in boxes is that mm. we, is that a good or bad thing, or is that a bit indifferent? First of all, it comes back to the fundamental point, which I also touch on in Modern British Cider, that beer and cider are entirely different drinks. You make cut, you brew cask ale, cask beer. Um, it's a fresh drink. It's a live drink. Crucially, the pubs know how to use it. They celebrate it with care and respect. Hopefully, not every pub does. I recognize and understand that. Um, but but also that you have to get through it kind of quickly because it will go off very easily. Again, cider isn't something that is fermented. You know, uh, the, the beyond beyond a macro cider. Cider isn't something that is fermented uh, in three weeks and then put into a cask and put into a pub. It takes weeks to ferment. It takes months to mature. So you you're, you're not going to get anything that approximates that sort of cascale experience from being um, easily. Uh, live and having the same sort of freshness and life it will be placed into it used to be put into those five gallon plastic polypins do you remember those mm. um either like either bone dry or with some sugar added back but with no stabilization so refermentation would occur but but crucially as soon as you take the first pint out of the top you've got a big headspace you've got that ullage you're going to start getting acetic characters quite quickly so the bag and box has come to the fore over the last 20 years or so as an environment whereby you can express the still cider and uh, but you can still uh, you know exclude expel the the air from the liquid so it does keep a degree of kind of freshness i 100% agree with you that the sight of 10 herniating bags poking out the corner of a pub or box is the the epitome of the finest traditional cider that ain't a good thing and that ain't a good look especially if they are sat on the bar at ambient temperature under the lamps you know maybe on the fridge so the exhaust of the fridge is cooking it nice everyone loves a 21 degree c and the thing that is so galling is that the cider makers or the or the re, or the you know the, the sellers or, or or anybody will say no no that's how it's supposed to be it's proper it's traditional it's supposed to be warm no it's not no it's not at all that is absolute rubbish it is supposed to be kept with the same reverence and respect as cascale and in my opinion the same temperature at cellar temperature cool not freezing cold you want to be able to taste it and get those sensory characters but you want it to keep you want it to come through really it should be attached to an engine and pulled through just like a cascale in my opinion Bad I asked that question. <laughs> I will, I will, if, if only Gabe wasn't so passionate. <laughs> no, I and, and you know I really enjoyed the comments from people. I think even now we would I'd probably be tempted to word that question slightly differently just based on the conversation we've already had because mm-hmm. we definitely yeah. put it as the alternative to beer, and we probably just could have said, "Do you enjoy cider as an alternative, or do you enjoy cider?" We we I think we still had it as occupying a very similar space. Well, which is fair, you know, because because it because it is for lots of people, and I don't, and I certainly don't want to say that if somebody fancies a pint, you know, fancies a pint of beer, and for whatever circumstance, there's some cider there that they feel that they can't drink it because you don't brew cider, rubbish. It, like it, it, but it is it, it's its own drink, and that it isn't just an apple based beer in some new world markets. The term cider just doesn't exist. It's in Poland. It's called apple beer, um, and 
you know, it, it deserves more than that, that it, that it has got its own language and stylization and structure and differentiation and all those kind of things. But ultimately, it is a booze. It is a nice thing to, to enjoy. And it is generally of a some more similar-ish kind of alcohol level to, to beer than to wine, although naturally in the sort of five and a half to seven and a half percent spectrum rather than down at four and a half. Um, so maybe, maybe it's not something that you drink five pints of. Maybe you have five halves of it. If you're feeling in the particular mood, you could buy a 750 mil bottle of cider as Johnny Garrett was talking about and have it at the dinner table or have it with some friends, share it. You could even drink it out of a wine glass. Yes, that's right. You can drink cider slowly in small quantities and sip and to savor because some of them are designed to do that they're so intensely um flavored and sort of characterized there can be often be like a barrel component in there as well and all sorts of things going on that you that you can treat it with the same reverence and sort of pace and mood as well as you would with the wine yeah i don't think this one is neckable no, no I, I, I don't. I don't even mean that. Just no, from like, no. Oh, I slight different. It's because that dryness. Yeah, well, I think almost prevents you. Yeah, no doubt. There are there are some ciders that are smashable, and that and that's fine. That first one, as you said, on a, on a warm summer's day with friends and chatting away. Oh, it's just it's just it's glorious, easy liquid, and chill it down. Make sure I totally agree with you, Steve. Same when it started to warm up. You know, that's the, those more sort of light, clean, fresh, acid-driven ciders chill it down a bit more these more broader tannic ciders are a bit bigger a bit chewier more at kind of cellar temperature so yeah it, it isn't it's it's occasional based and it's personal preference based absolutely when you're talking about cider and i think you went into that definition at the start but obviously cider seems to over the last 10 years has taken on a bit of a broader spectrum in terms of the fruit mm. that gets used you take copperberg for example yeah in the strictest sense, can that still be called a cider? That depends if you're from deepest, darkest Dorset and you want to get your pitchfork out and have a jab at anybody who dares to put anything into your fermented apple juice. For some people, cider is, was, will only ever be fermented apple juice. I, on the other hand, as a you know man of the cider world and having... Um, I lived in New Zealand for a number of years. After, after, after living in the cider shed, I went to work uh, for Westerns as a cider maker. I made cider on the big scale after making it on the small scale. I then actually worked for Heineken. I did the corporate thing. I was their cider comms manager for three years. Eventually, it got a bit too greasy in corporate. And so I escaped all the way to New Zealand, where I made a bit of cider um, and made a bit of wine. And it was because we're, not, we're talking about a market that is... It, you know there's not there's no great old heritage of cider making in new zealand it's quite a new world kind of country um but apples do grow and i was living in the uh the the Mutadi valley just outside nelson which grows a lot of apples it's also quite renowned for its hop growing as well and i happened to live uh, in a house with a block of motueka on one side of nelson's oven on the other and some rewaka on the other side of the road um and there were some fantastic sort of boysenberries uh, and black currants were grown in the air as well. Fijos, if anyone's been to New Zealand, you'll know what a Fijoa is. And so why wouldn't we use these amazing raw materials grown in, in the same valley that we know are the best that that fruit can be? We're making great cider. It's just 100% juice. And we're being playful and experimental, just like the brewers are, of incorporating different things. And 
made some great drinks. And so I, when I came back to the UK in 2016, I brought my slightly worldlier experience with me. And it made me understand that I'm not anti-flavoured cider. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. I'm going to do a little swear. I'm just anti-shit cider. And it just so happens that the vast majority of flavoured ciders that are available in the UK marketplace, in my humble opinion, are fairly shit. And by that very technical term, I mean, have a, a massive paucity of apple juice content. We'll come on to juice content in a second. Has a massive degree of artificiality of colour, flavour and sweetener. And also has enough sugar to sink a submarine. A one 500 ml bottle of Copperberg strawberry and lime contains 50.5 grams of sugar. That's 13 teaspoons of sugar in one bottle. That's more, that, than, red, that's more than a Red Bull. That's more than a Red Bull. It's more than full fat Coke. It is shocking. Yeah. Sho shocking, shocking. That is the exact word. So hold on. So, but chocolate, uh, all the chocolate companies have reduced the size of their chocolate bars because they wanted to reduce the amount of sugar. Because they're having to pay sugar tax, which yeah. alcohol does not have to pay because it pays booze tax, pays duty. So alcohol does not pay the sugar tax. Um, so the fact so the fact is that the majority of flavored ciders that are sold in the UK are what I call alcopops alco by proxy. They are because there is no discernible fermented character. There's no discernible apple character within there. They are carriers. They are vehicles for the artificial sweet fruitiness. And those particular drinks, I don't think do a great deal to improve the perception of the broader cider category, not because they have an additional flavor in there, but because of the way that they are made. There are now in the UK a load of amazing, amazing flavoured ciders where you've got great cider, very well made, with the addition of other fruits or hops or spices, grapes and grape skins, grape juice, either added as a flavour or, or co-fermented together to create really interesting, playful uh, experimental and expressive drinks so it isn't just as simple as uh, as kind of right or wrong you've got to kind of dig down another level i think we had a lot of really good comments there yeah and obviously as as, as always we've only really showcased uh, a few of those but there'll be a link in the show notes to the questions people can click through and have a look at all the answers if you want to continue to get involved in that discussion use the hashtag opinions and we will find you Let's move on to the final cider that we're going to be trying this week. Gabe, what are we drinking now? Okay, so this cider um, comes from an atypical part of UK cider production. It comes from the Black Isle of Scotland, um, which is closer to Stavanger than it is in Norway than it is to Shepton Mallet in Somerset. And this is this is to demonstrate a, a couple of different things. First of all, that although the sort of beating heart of cider making within the UK historically, you know, is that West and Southwest, that's what it's so closely synonymous with. There is this great old culture in the East, the Eastern counties. There is cider made all over Wales, all over Northern Ireland, all through Scotland, Northern England. Um, there's a cider maker in the middle of Manchester, up in the up in Cumbria, they're everywhere. Wherever apples can physically grow, there is some stupid person trying to turn it into alcohol. Well, probably a very, very wise person trying to turn it into alcohol. And that very stupid wise person here 
um, is Ryan Seeley from the Caledonian Cider Company. And so he takes um, local apples, which tend to be, again, dessert apples, eating apples, very high acid um, varieties like um, James Grieve and things like that. And in the 20, oh, let me get this right, the 2019 harvest, he didn't have, it was, it was a terrible frost. Um, when you went a terrible late frost, apples, you know, blossom and that's necessary for pollinating and getting the fruit. When you get a late blossom, um, sometimes when you get frost, it can sort of zap the blossom. And it means that the apples simply don't grow. Imagine that. Imagine being a brewer and just like, actually, no, we just can't actually use any hops this year. They, they're, they're not there. These are, again, the challenges that cider makers are faced with. And so he had to try and source some apples from elsewhere. And he got in touch with a with an apple grower down in, in Somerset, Ross Mangles, and he bought some more tannic apple varieties. And so thus started what is now uh, an ongoing um, um, product, which he calls North and South. So it's a blend of the more acid-driven zingy dessert fruit and the tannic fruit. But crucially, you might be picking up without preempting anything here, some slight baked apple or toffee or apple uh, strudel yeah, apple pie. Yeah, that right. was what that was the first thing. That Apple I was pie. Getting. Yeah. Awesome. I'm vaguely good at my job. This is good. this is good for me to remember. And that is because that tannic component, that tannic juice has undergone what's called the keeving process. So this is this is how the French make their cider, which for anybody who's been to France, you know, is often quite an unctuous, sort of sweeter style of thing. And they just press the juice, uh, and, and Ryan presses his juice as per normal but it'll introduce um, an enzyme, a pectinase enzyme, which precipitates out the pectin, which is the jelly-like character that you can often get um, in apples and historically has been used to like set jam. And this, this pectin blob precipitates out of the juice and yeast and nutrient binds onto it. And it rises to the surface and forms a brown crusty cow pat on the surface, which the French call le chapeau brun, the brown hat. And what you do is you whip away the juice underneath, which is massively yeast and nutrient deficient, and you start fermenting that. But because it is massively yeast and nutrient deficient, fermentation is a slow, which precipitates the creation of all these big, bold, earthy, intense characters. But it also means that fermentation is quite incomplete. So it means that your alcohol level is slightly slower, and that is natural residual sweetness. That's not the addition of any sugar post-fermentation, that is natural apple sweetness. And that's what's really contributing towards this apple pie kind of character. So it's a very clever blend of different varieties using specific techniques. Um, and this is this is quite, you know, this is the sort of softest and roundest of the ciders. And I've probably talked for long enough. You tell me what you think, chaps. I like this one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Straight away, I think we both got the, uh, it was for me, it was mum used to make homemade apple pie and it was, not only is the smell reminds me of that, but if there was ever any apple left over and it's cooled down, this is almost what it tastes like as well. I mean, this is the other thing. I, I'm, this, and we talk about it in beer a lot, but you don't really spot the alcohol levels. I'm not spotting the alcohol, <laughs> let alone the level of it. This does feel mm. like juice. And I'm not too sure what, how, what strength it is. It's 5%. Okay, I'm drinking five percent apple juice. Got some of this for the morning. <laughs> Aroma-wise, it, it it does it kind of reminds me of those um, you know those little drinks you used to get for babies. That, that <laughs> oh, what the little bottles? <laughs> the little bottles. If you, if you ever if you ever ever smelt an apple, one of those, it, it, it very much smelt like this. 
it's it's very drinkable. It's I, I think you said it's it, it's quite soft and rounded, and mm. and I think for me because there's not that that sharpness on the finish, I'm, I'm finding this much easier yeah. to drink. It's not sharp. It's a really slight dryness. Yeah, again, more like the first one where it's that dryness to hook you back in again to refresh your palate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think chilled and that the level of sweetness is just in the right space. Maybe it's- if it warmed up you might start getting that initial feeling you had with the first beer. First it's, cider. Damn. Oh, there it is. You know, there it is. It was Boys, you. you've, been, you've been doing so well. <laughs> I've been very impressed. That's not bad. Um, or this, yeah, this is, a, you're, you're absolutely right, Martin. This is, it's a really well-balanced cider. So we, we, we have got the acidity in there. Um, but but you don't notice it as being overt because because of the nice sort of soft sort of the dusty tannins uh, astringency. Whereas you know the last one, the Ross and White, it's pretty grippy. This one, soft and dusty, and then that nice gentle, smooth sort of caramel silk kind of nature of the of the texture. This is a cider that many many people can get into, and that is kind of the reason why I chose it. Um, I wanted to present something. First of all, that was lighter and fresher and more aromatic and acid-driven. The second one, all grunty, tannin, and another with a focus on the sort of spontaneous fermentation. This one, uh, a lesson in kind of balance and introduce. It's the, it's the keeving, it's the keeve portion of that cider that's providing that gentle kind of unctuousness. It's it's a very Ryan is a very very a small <laughs> but um, not him personally he's normal height but the small volume production cidery but he's a very very good cider maker i think he's absolutely fantastic he's also his day job um is as a shift distiller and so he uh, as many cider makers uh, do he uses um spirit casks whiskey casks to ferment his ciders at the very end are you picking up a tiny little bit at the back of the throat of a little of a little spicy smokiness in there. It's, it's very subtle, but I'm just picking up at the very end. Would this be a good cider? If you were into mulling your ciders, would this one be a good one out of the three? Yeah, I think so. What, what a, like I said, I, I'm, I'm not against playful experimentation and the addition of, you know, spices, classic mulling spices, you know, nutmeg and clove and cinnamon and things like that to create that kind of profile but this is but this is a great this is a great example of what just apple juice can do ferment fermentate and juice and fermentation you know uh it, it is amazing the breadth and the diversity of different just sheer flavors that you can achieve from humble apples through through craftsmanship and through and through clever and sort of playful fermentation and maturation so yeah i i think that this is you could almost call it a bit of a gateway cider. I think that this could be a drink that lots of different people coming from very different directions um, could appreciate that and go, as, as I'm sure that Ryan hears very often, I don't like cider, but I like that. Well, guess what? That is cider. So you do like cider. Come on. I, I was going to call it a gateway cider, but when, there you go. when we did the, <laughs> the, the sour beer show, I, I referred to one of those beers as a, as a gateway sour, and it upset quite a lot of people. Oh, really? No such thing as, as a gateway sour. But <laughs> would you like would you like a top up, Steve? Yeah, I will have a little bit more of this one actually, because I, I, I am I'm, I'm really going to I'm going to die happy now, Steve. Look, I've got a little tear. There we go. My, my life's work is complete. Cheers, boys. Well, I'm, I'm very much enjoying the flavours. In, so, in, in this, you one. know, and, and you know, as, as we sort of go through this, um, this last cider, probably a couple of things that spring to mind is like 
you've, you've spoken about the challenges and obviously there's been lots of challenges over the last couple of years, but the biggest challenge to me still seems to be both perception and access. Yes. The perception of cider and the access to cider. Going right back to the start when you said a pub or bar or restaurant might have a cider and that a cider will often be one that you have seen in supermarkets anyway. Hmm. So how do... How, how do how how do we get how do you get people to get more involved inside if they can't see it? Yeah, it, 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 route to market now more so I think than the preconception is 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 the biggest challenge, and it is starting to be addressed. But it's going to be, you know, uh, there isn't going to be the equivalent of I'm not sure if you'll buy into the phrase a craft beer revolution but you know there's no denying that the wholesale amazing perception and a little chunk of volume as well of total beer change in the way that so many people view and consume um, that beverage there isn't going to be the same thing that happens with cider because of the preconception that already exists about it as a drink um, but also, again, coming back to that sort of mode of production and that for this kind of stuff, you can't suddenly churn out loads of it because people are enjoying it. You have to kind of like wait another year and then buy more apples and, you know, try and guess how much people are going to want to buy. It's a bit tricky, um, but it is starting to change and it's starting to change from 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 the top down. If you go to the supermarket today, uh, if you go to, to to Tesco's, they've got a cider in there called Pulped, which is made by... Uh, a couple of really awesome chaps down in Somerset and it's great cider and you can get it in Tesco. There's also Scully, an amazing South African cider you can get in Tesco. There's Galapet uh, in Sainsbury's and Waitrose, which is a sensational uh, French cider. Um, stalwarts like, uh, you know, Henny's are really good, Sheppies and things like that. It is, it's starting to happen that you can get really good ciders available in the supermarket. It's been happening for a while that some uh, online and uh, you know and r real retail premises um, selling beers uh, are, are starting to get a little bit more interested in cider and also from the from the wine and especially the natural wine perspective it's a very easy kind of crossover into ciders especially the advent of the larger bottle format some people call them fine ciders and again it's just about a different different perception and context, you know, the way that the bottle looks, the way the label looks, the language that they use, all the cues that you're being told of how and when to drink it. This isn't rough old leg bender. This is, this is orange wine. This is something to be really enjoyed and to learn more about how it's been made and who and it's been crafted and, and all that kind of stuff. So there are, so cider is coming into spaces when it wouldn't have been there previously at all. There are also now a number of great cider again physical and online retailers as well i'll name mention uh, mention places such as the cat in the glass which also sells beer as well um or scratting's craft cider shop crafty nectar fantastic provider of uh online um sort of mail order cider boxes places like uh, two belly in bristol you know even uh, you know noble rot fantastic natural wine uh, in london they had a sort of little cider festival the other week too so it is happening it, it's it is although it can feel like a, a snail's pace sometimes all i have to do if i'm feeling like ah, things aren't sort of going at the the pace that i would i would love it to is to think back to 
what did five years ago look like? And it was entirely different. So it's going to be uh, a slower, more organic kind of burn. But, and, but it's the on-trade that's the tricky one because great ciders are in keg now. The, you know, the, the bag and box will have its place in that traditional environment. Most people know cider to be cold and fizzy and by the pint. Maybe I can be about the two-third, possibly, if it's a bit more alcoholic. And they exist, brilliantly made, um, and, 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 and you can purchase. But guess what? It costs more than Strongbow or Thatcher's gold. Where things are at currently and where, where the real sort of challenge comes, comes into play is that for the majority of publicans, they go, why would I have your cider that's £140 for a 50 when, or for a 30 possibly, um, when I could get, you know, Thatcher's Gold for 65 quid for a 50. It's just a cider, isn't it? And the same obviously would have happened when the likes of the Colonel and Brewdog and Thornbridge and whoever in those early days of trying to really push their expensive, um, intensely flavoured beers into pubs whereby, you know, classic lagers were the norm. They would have had the same kind of uh, you know, pushback. But something happened. There was a tipping point of consumer, you know, the consumer had experienced it enough somewhere to start demanding it. And once the consumer says, we want it and we're going to buy it, that's when the publican will sell it. And we are getting there. We're getting there. But this is why it's very kind of you to invite me onto your podcast, because maybe there'll be some of your listeners who will go away and will seek it out. And that retailer and that pub if somebody starts buying more of it, they might be more inclined to stock it. And so that positive uh, sort of sale cycle starts to be achieved. I can only hope. I mean, I wouldn't mind having, uh, I know I said I'd rephrase the question, but I do quite like cider, but I don't quite like cider that I can see available in the on-trade most of the time. Exactly. So I, I don't I don't do it. And I'm yeah. not just going to get a can or bottle out of the fridge, if they, even if they have one. Um, so I do. I would agree. I would say that is the biggest battle, and it probably is very similar to uh, when craft beer revolution, for want of a better phrase, kicked off. Yeah. Trying to get publicans and people to trust their product, and almost like feel the dreams, build it, and they will come, put it on the bar, and people will buy it. But yes, I can. I can imagine that as a challenge, especially with some of the cider producers being a lot smaller as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, volume uh, and, and visibility, these, 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 are, these are real challenges. But it is changing. The opportunities and the platforms for cider is changing. I, I uh, a few times a year, I pop onto Channel 4 Sunday Brunch. I'm their cider person. You know, uh, Mark, Bre- uh, Mark, Mark Dredge and Sarah Warman and various people sort of advocate for beer. I do the cider. I've been invited to speak at the um a beer x conference about the opportunities and crossovers of of, of cider and beer that it, it, it is starting this interest within it's the trade get the trade knowledgeable and interested and they will advocate to the consumer and then the consumer will kind of come back so i think it's the thing as well as as, as you might have gathered having a personal passion for this fermented kind of beverage because because it's where i'm from and all that kind of stuff but i do feel really sort of privileged and excited uh and enthusiasm um enforced by the fact that this is kind of like happening and live right now this must be what it was like to have been involved in um you know the camera kind of movement in the in the early 70s or to have been involved in those sort of mid 2000s sort of craft beer early things and actually affecting change and I know that 
any change that I might that I might achieve is isn't necessarily going to revolutionize kind of cider category and, and hundreds of millions of liters are suddenly going to change as a result. But some people might start drinking it and change their perceptions and have a great time. And that feels that feels awesome. And that feels really fun to be able to to be in a space that I might be able to change some opinions. I, th- I think that sums it up perfectly for me because I think go- coming into this, certainly my wish of, of coming into recording this podcast tonight was was, mm. was twofold. And, and the first was, will this change my opinion that I, I currently have on, on cider that, that I've had for, for many years? And I'd say yes. It has absolutely done that. We've, we've, we've drunk three ciders that all have very, very different tastes and profiles to them. And I'd say that just from the three that we've drunk, there's, there's probably pretty much something for everyone there. And, and obviously the, the second point was hopefully that I'd keep it down. And I've, I've done that as well. So <laughs> those, those are two boxes when? that are ticked for, for, for me. And, and it has been, it's been a fantastic experience having you on with us, Gabe, and you sharing your knowledge uh, around cider and, and, your, and your own journey. Um, now's your opportunity to, to, to pitch all, all, all of your stuff. Um, you said you've got a book out. Uh, you, you've obviously got website. To, to tell us to tell us where people can find your stuff we'll put it all in the show notes anyway but this this is your opportunity to to, to sell it a little bit more amazing thank you very much uh, and 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 listeners don't don't turn away just yet this is the, this is the really kind of good stuff well uh, if you if you search for ciderologist um I, I made up the word and i did trademark it as well no one's ever challenged it so maybe that was a waste of a few quid but if you google Ciderologist, you will find me on on any kind of platform out there from a social media point of view. I fairly recently launched a Patreon page as well, whereby you can have uh, exclusive access to articles, to cider maker interviews, to cider drink along kind of hangouts um, and sort of news updates. It's a fun place. It's quite new. There's already quite a lot of content in there. There are different tiers for different levels of access for anybody who's sort of uh, sort of understood sort of Patreon from, I know there's lots of beer people who, who play in that spectrum too. So do go and check that out. I also contribute towards my own podcast. It's called the Neutral Cider Hotel. And I do it with my friends, Martin Goodwin Sharman, Grant Hutchison, and Mr. Scott Riggs. We did a big series one during lockdown. We would have one every week. I think we got to 48 weeks. Um, and then things opened up and, you know, life took over a little bit. So we've uh, only started slowly sort of coming back to things. And so there's a, there's a few new episodes of series two out there. It's a slightly fun and irreverent take on the world of cider. Also quite an incorporation of music. Uh, not because of anything that I do, but my fellow co-hosts have some fairly strong associations to the music world. We even interview quite a few interesting, famous musicians. So do go and check out the Neutral Cider Hotel podcast. And then for anybody who sort of works in the trade or or, or not, who's just a, interested to learn a little bit more about cider, I also undertake um, cider training. It's not about how to make cider. It's what is cider and a little bit of what we've been discussing here on the podcast it's run through the the beer and cider academy um the the, the beer training to create beer uh, sommeliers well it's the same with cider but we call them pommeliers um again if you if you search for the ciderologist you'll be able to find all the links through to that and and my fit there are many sort of cider events that happen all around the country the one that might in 
intrigue you the most is called the Cider Salon, and it's taking place in Bristol on Saturday, the 2nd of July. I will see you there, I hope. And as I say, there'll be links in the show notes to all of that if, if we can find it all. If, if not, as, as Gabe says, just search <laughs> the Ciderologist and you'll find it. As I say, Gabe, it's been fantastic having you on with us this week. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise around cider. Martin, what have we got coming up on the next show? Back to our fantasy show series, Steve. We haven't done one of those for a while, have we? No, no. And it's going to be a bit of a, a big beery adventure i'm not going to say too much else but the big beery adventure could also involve big beers looking forward to it very much <laughs> looking forward to it so thank you to our listeners for joining us once again and we'll look forward to sharing some more opinions with you soon wassail wassail i am the cider